Welcome to the Conditional Release Program, a podcast that delves into the netherworld of cults, crims and con artists. We don't like these people and it shows. We believe the best way to expose them is to hold them up to a harsh light, point our index fingers in their general direction and mock them mercilessly. Take them down a peg or two until they cease to exist in any other form than the shit on our shoes. I'm Jack the Insider, otherwise known as Peter Hoisted for tax purposes. And I'm Joel Hill, and together we will take you on a wade through the morass of the most appalling of human behaviour. I'm keeping a bucket handy because I might projectile vomit at any time. Today we'll be looking at the genesis of QAnon, a cult-like organisation that has at its core spurious and baseless allegations of mass pedophilia committed not by a sleazy uncle or a perverted stepfather or even the Catholic priest, but by Hollywood elites, New England Democrats and even some of our own pollies. And we will take you to the source of that QAnon madness in an attempt to find where it all started. And it may just be that it all started here in New South Wales in the deep, dark history of the 1990s where some very nasty, baseless allegations were hurled about under parliamentary privilege. Joining us today is a special guest, very close friend of the show and highly esteemed on the Conditional Release Program, Meredith Bergman, who has an honoured place in Australian politics as a woman who would not take any shit from swine, be it South African apartheidist, vicious prison systems, and even the Don himself. I busted out the top shelf cordial, the cheese and jets, and I'm wearing my best singlet today. So esteemed is today's special guest. We'll bring the hammer down on all of the ugliness in our deeper dive shortly, but first... To Huxton News. Up first is the Facebook purge. We uh, gave a nod to this earlier, but it actually happened. Facebook, which also owns Instagram, has finally given into pressure and taken down an astounding amount of Facebook and Instagram Q influencers. We're a bit late to this, as it did happen about 10 days ago. And the reason why that's relevant is because the ban was swift. It happened over maybe the course of two days and it took a huge amount of scalps. The long list of ridiculous groups I was a member of has shrunk to a small few, like well-obscured cult groups, a few thinly veiled anti-vax groups, and of course, a bunch of Save the Children pages, which they don't really go for. Pat, Pete Evans, sadly, survived the cull. Uh, the question of what this means for freedom of speech on the internet is a fairly complex one, and we've clearly shown this year that we cannot be trusted to speak freely amongst each other and we must be constantly watched with a very big stick ready to come down swiftly upon us at any time which is a bloody shame but it's fairly predictable that humanity fails every test that we've been subjected to so why is this any different there was a cue drop on the 17th of september which suggested the end was nigh and told followers to deploy clamophage drop all references regarding q qanon etc to avoid ban slash termination. And they've done this pretty well by obscuring the words of punctuation, intentional mistakes using the save the children hashtags and all that sort of bullshit. So they're hiding in plain sight. But let's face it, these people are narcissists that seek attention more than truth. So if their fun catchphrases can't really be searched, they may as well not exist and they may as well not do it. So whether this is the beginning of the end for QAnon or just another blip in the history is quite contentious and both sides are quite committed to their their side but i think people are slaves to the algorithm of the big three facebook instagram and twitter and likely are just going to move on to the next weird thing they're not really likely to go underground and make an account on the right-wing echo chambers like gab and parlor that give them the freedom to be as horrific and racist as they like i think it's going to take a take a nosedive and um because these people are uh, algorithm slaves they're just going to move on to a new thing 
Well, in huge news uh, this week, the judgment of the otherwise impeccable Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, was held up to the light this week when she confessed in the ICAC to rooting a short, fat, bald bloke named Daryl. And if that wasn't bad enough, it emerged that not only had Premier Gladys been rooting a short, fat, bald man named Daryl, but, but that said short, fat, bald man was from Wagga, or I should say Wagga Wagga. Uh, never ever call Wagga Wagga Wagga. And we could go on with that alliterative joke all day until we discovered that the short, fat, bald bloke was actually from Hay. What was Premier Gladys thinking? Well, it seems she was sitting in Cabinet adjudicating over important matters of state, where to build the next great stadium in Sydney, how to fuck up the light rail project even more, or sell off Sydney ferries for scrap. She was sitting there with a wide on she'd cracked over a short, fat, bald bloke named Daryl from Hay. Still recovering from shock, the people of the great state of New South Wales recalled in horror when they heard telephone intercepts not of appalling corruption or shocking, dishonest and fraudulent conduct in public office, but when short, fat, bald Daryl from Hay referred to his penis as his little mate with a bald head and a lively chat with the Premier. I don't know what else to say. Viva la Yes, yeah, the heart will go on. In other news, uh, Trump has extended his real lap of insanity toward proper nod to conspiracy theories. He retweeted what can only be said as a completely bonkers conspiracy theory that alleges that Obama killed the SEAL Team 6 that killed Osama. So Trump has always had issues accepting the fact that Obama killed Osama, which sounds great, and finally has found a way to take the win off him. Uh, Basically, he retweeted a ridiculous claim from a bloke that calls himself a falconer, so basically he plays around with birds, and he has an inside scoop on the way that Obama took out Osama. So he calls himself a CIA whistleblower, but I think he's probably just a deranged lunatic that likes birds. He looks a lot like the perpetual US presidential joke candidate, Vermin Supreme, but more like a sort of scary right-wing nutjob version. Big beard, weird dude, doesn't look healthy. So, of course, the killing was staged. The bloke they killed was a body double, of course, and they quite relied on the fact that they dumped the body out to sea after, which, you know, obscured the whole thing. So that's given birth to a whole bunch of conspiracy theories. Here's a new one created by someone with as much credibility as the last ones because, of course, apparently this is all tied to a $150 billion deal to the bogeyman of the US patriot, Iran. I mean... But when the militants from Taliban took out a helicopter in Afghanistan, it took out a lot of the famous SEAL Team 6 that nixed Osama, which was, you know, upsetting for, you know, military fetishists everywhere. And of course, instead of an unfortunate accident, which can happen, it was a missile sent by Obama to cover up the cover up. So Donald Trump, famous for retweeting insane shit, retweeted this. And the tweet said alongside the article, Biden, Biden and Obama may have had SEAL Team 6 killed. Now, that is bad. That's really, really bad because that's about as wingnut as it gets. I mean, it's Pizzagate levels of stupid. The original tweet is gone because the account was suspended and that is a good thing. The original tweet links to an article on a wingnut news site named DJHJ News, which are probably loving this bump in traffic and infamy. And it's written by someone that claims to be an ex-community organizer and homeschool mum, which is interesting because, you know, Obama was also a community organizer. So that's a bit sus. She's since distanced herself from this fairly homeschooled piece of journalism, but uh, the original piece stays up and so far has 360-odd thousand views. She said on Twitter, 
For the record, anyone following my SEAL Team 6 articles, I have no proof that the whistleblower's claims are true, but I am suspicious. Of course I am. I also believe it should be investigated by people who are far smarter than I and and who are far more equipped to investigate. Maybe people who weren't homeschooled. Um, No offense to our homeschooling listeners. I'm sure you're very brilliant. Um, (laughs) Feel free free to offend Uh, Apparently there's a bunch of documents that prove this, of course, but there's always a bunch of documents that don't exist. It's bullshit. Like, come on, show me the money. But... I just feel like galvanizing the Q kids just before an election has this like little spark in his idea that's like almost a sound political strategy. But I think that he forgot there's actually about 295 odd million Americans that think QAnon's bullshit. So, I mean, come on. No, not, not traditionally, no. So not one of, of the SEAL Team 6 involved in the raid named Robert J. O'Neill uh, has also come out on Twitter and basically told Donald Trump to shut the fuck up. and. It seems a bit ridiculous because if there's a SEAL Team 6 guy on Twitter, what is Obama doing? How did he let him live? Naughty boy. So, I mean, this is a joke. The entire thing's a fuck up. The fact that he retweeted is incredibly concerning because it's proof that Donald J. Trump is well aware of the conspiracies. And when he plays dumb about it, that's just seamless lies. He's getting more and more unhinged as time goes on. If I didn't know better, I'd say he was in a fair amount of trouble uh, in terms of the electoral college. In terms of uh, in terms of the well, he was never going to win, never going to win the popular vote. But I'd say he's in deep, deep trouble. He's behind in North Carolina. He's behind in Florida. He's behind in Pennsylvania. He's behind in Wisconsin. He's behind in Michigan. He's behind in Arizona. I could go on. We are going to see this man dissemble before our very eyes. I look forward to it. I think the descent into madness, as Pete Evans has showed us, is um, usually pretty funny. Yeah, well, yeah, Pete, Pete's a red, uh, red hat wearing guy. So uh, look, he'll, he'll he'll probably be looking at this with a with a uh, with a. I look forward to his uh, incredibly uh, loud tantrum when Donald J. Trump loses the election. He will be that week, and Pete Evans is going to be a real treat. We have here today our, our first guest, but also one of the most honoured guests that we are ever likely to have on yep. this podcast, no matter how long it runs. And that is the wonderful Meredith Bergman, Dr. Meredith Bergman, uh, and uh, in, in fact, and uh, a woman with so many letters after her name that I dare not repeat them for, for fear <laughs> of messing them up. G'day, Meredith. Are you there? Can you hear me? Good afternoon, Jack. You are there. That's wonderful. Gee, technology is a beautiful <laughs> thing, isn't it? Meredith, among your many many achievements, you are a life member of the Australian Labor Party. Is that right? I am indeed. Well, I put it to you now, the Labor Party is an anachronistic joke foisted on the people of Australia with no chance of electoral success at a federal level ever again, a party that routinely gives a mediocre Liberal Party free kicks and effectively rolls out the carpet and ushers them into power every three years. The Labor Party's rare profitable bits and pieces should be sold off to the National Rugby League and the smouldering hulk that remains cut into small portions and fed to the Australian Greens. Or, Meredith, am I being too harsh? No, that sounds about right sometimes. (laughs) But, but of course, only having people in the Labor Party can actually say that. Um, I, I decided a long time ago, I think it was 1984, when Bob Hawke failed to bring about um, national land rights, uniform national land rights, because that criminal over in Western Australia, Brian Burke, 
refused to be part of it. I remember when that failed. Hell of a stamp collector, though, wasn't he, Meredith? One of the one <laughs> Australia's finest philatelists. That's all worth a fair bit. But I remember thinking then, gosh, if I don't leave the party now, I'll probably never get round to leaving it. And I never have. I've been in the party for uh, 50 years. All the better for it. You stuck it out. But let's take let's go back a little bit further than that. And I want to talk to you about your activism, your anti-apartheid activism. And uh, you'll probably be able to, well, you'll be able to tell me the timing of this, but uh, there are letters that now sit in uh, the Australian uh, the Australian National Museum of yours, correspondence uh, between you and Sir Donald uh, Bradman. Uh, and... Tell me when that actually started. Was that during the Springboks, uh, Springboks tour of Australia or earlier? Uh, look, I think it started a bit earlier. Um, we had set up a, a group called the, we called it the Anti-Apartheid Movement, but the campaign that we were running was called the Stop the Tours campaign. And it was mainly aimed at stopping the 1971 rugby Union tour in the middle of 1971 and yeah. the tour that was going to happen at the end of 71 and going Let into just 72. just interrupt you. How many times were you, were you arrested <laughs> in 1971 during the Springbok tour? <laughs> I Look, I, it was probably six or seven <laughs> times in 1971, but I had been arrested quite a lot before that in anti-Vietnam. <laughs> if you've lost count, uh, that's that's quite something. How many times have you been arrested? Oh, I can't quite. Uh, it's it's under 10. I don't know. I, I should well, go I and say, you, you were probably I keep remembering other times. <laughs> it's just so I, good. I keep having to add ones because I, I suddenly remember, oh, yeah, I think I was arrested at that one. Look, we're talking about so you were definitely yeah. arrested at the SCG because I've seen oh, the yeah. photograph. Oh, yeah. You may well have been arrested at the Gabba. No, I was arrested at the And, yeah. Although I found out recently that what I got arrested for at Manica Oval had actually been done by uh, Gary Foley and Gary Williams, the two Aboriginal activists. They yeah. they actually cut the barbed wire with the bolt cutters and done everything that the police alleged in court that I'd done. And I only found this out recently, so I got a bit cranky about that. <laughs> anyway, getting back to my story about about Don Bradman. Um, yeah. But but look, let me just go back. Let me just go back. You were probably convicted of a numerous public order offences, but you were pardoned. It must be said. No, no, I was not pardoned. What happened was I was given a jail sentence. You know, it wasn't a fine. No option. I was given a two months jail sentence for running onto the Sydney cricket ground with my sister and two others. And we were the only people who actually got onto the ground and we actually stopped the game. My sister kicked the ball and it went right up into the <laughs> air and the bulletin, the bulletin called it the best kick of the season. <laughs> I, I, didn't know what, I didn't know what to do, so I sort of lay down in the middle of the ruck and some very surprised footballers <laughs> sort of went, oh, you know, what do we do now? What do we do and now? The police, um, it dragged me off the field and there's quite a lot of, you know, quite startling photographs of that incident yes. because they didn't yeah. allow me to walk off the field. I was dragged off. but And I got two months jail for basically what was a straight demonstration offence. 
And I might add that we were both, we were all fully clothed because somehow the <laughs> somehow the uh, young people of today go, oh, tell us about the time you streaked. On the I, I might have started that actually, Meredith. So I, <laughs> no, it's been actually written in the that question myself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and with that, I, you know, I appealed against the sentence and it was a suspended sentence and then I broke that. And then somehow miraculously the, the papers that would have sent me back into jail disappeared. And I was always a bit worried about that because I was afraid they might reappear, at, at, like if I was wanting to go overseas or something. So when uh, Labor got into power, I asked the Attorney General, who was a friend, the, the wonderful Frank Walker, I said, um, is there any chance of getting a, a, a pardon for, uh, for you know, stopping the racially selected yeah. team? Mm. And he said, oh, yeah, he said he'd go off and have a look at it, look at it. And, of course, he came back later and said, oh, dear, he said, my law isn't very good. <laughs> I, can't, I can't pardon you. Um, oh, no, I didn't ask for a pardon. I asked for a no bill. That's right. right. And he said, I can't no bill you because you've actually been found guilty. But what I can do is organise for the governor to pardon you, pardon you. And at that stage, I said, "Oh, look, don't worry about it. I'm sure no one will bring it up." It's been brought up many times, and but and so, at some point along the line, probably before the Springbok tour, you think you took it upon yourself to write to Donald Bradman. Now, Bradman wasn't the chairman of the Australian Cricket Board as it was known at the time, but he was the he was the power in Australian cricket and had been right. really. 40s. Jack, can I correct you? Yeah. I did not bother the Don. The Don bothered <laughs> ah, me. Oh, really? I was, yes. I was going about my <laughs> Yes. I was going about my business um, trying to stop the uh, cricket tour by, you know, making the football tour impossible. And so this would be probably, probably June 1971. Yeah. And out of the blue, I suddenly get this um, letter from Don Bradman. And I was a student at the time, so it never occurred to me why was this great icon writing to me. And Jack, he was, he was the chairman of the Board of Selectors um, right. and it really was the power in, in Australian cricket. And he wrote to me and said, Miss Bergman, why are you doing this? You know, why, <laughs> tell me what you have against the... It's so being a polite, polite ex-Anglican from Beecroft, yeah. I sent him a letter back saying why we were doing it and how terrible a heartache was. And then he wrote me another letter saying, but how is, how is South Africa any different to, say, Russia? Why aren't you boycotting the Bolshoi Ballet? And I had to write back and say, because what South Africa is doing is about their sport. You know, they are insisting on racially selected sporting yeah. teams, whereas yeah. Russia would yeah. put anyone in their team as long as they could yes. win. So, and then he wrote back to me again, and then I wrote back to him, and he kept. How many letters in total? Do you remember? Back and forth in total? I, I've managed to find, I think, four from him, and but I think there were five or six. So I'll eventually find the others. Right. But so of there's... course. There was My letters were hard to find because we didn't have photocopying in those days. No. But I've, I've found a few drafts and I've also, on one of his letters, I wrote 
the reply in the margin in ink, which I think is a terrible thing to do <laughs> to a letter from Sir Donald. And also just to prove that it was him bothering me and not me bothering him, I've got a handwritten letter from him, mostly they're long type letters, but I've got a handwritten letter from him saying, Miss Bergman, why haven't you replied to my last <laughs> oh. letter? I am waiting for it. <laughs> so, yeah, so he was enjoying the correspondence, but at some point you were able to persuade him or at least he volunteered that he would, once once you had spelled out the ugliness of, of apartheid and how, <clears throat> and how it represented itself so horribly in sport, he, you, you were able to persuade him to go to South Africa and see for himself. Look, what, what we were very proud of was that in September of 1971, when he announced that the cricket tour would not take place, we had always imagined he'd say, look, we can't guarantee their safety, so we, you know, we can't have them yeah. touring. But he made a really lovely statement saying, we cannot play them until their um, government policy of apartheid is changed. Like it, it really was, it was a really good, strong principle statement. And many, many years later, um, I read an interview with John Bradman, his son, who actually said it was um, Sir Donald's correspondence with me and another anti-apartheid activist, Peter McGregor, that it was his correspondence with us which had eventually convinced him that the cricket team shouldn't come. And I've never been proud of frankly. Uh, and yeah. so you should be. You have eerie powers of persuasion. <laughs> but let me just go on and explain how great this was. Not only was apartheid, uh, well, uh, South African sporting teams were banned uh, from entering this country uh, and we and, and, our, and our sides in turn would not to uh, would not visit them uh, from that point on. Well, it was really you've got Gough Whitlam when it was when Gough Whitlam got in and announced that 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 really happened. But also, Meredith, because the South African tour was cancelled, the Don had to basically invite certainly some of the world's best players to to tour Australia as the rest of the world eleven. The the those the stats that come from the, the test series played in Australia with the rest of the Australia the rest of the world have never actually been accepted into <clears throat> into the test stats. But uh, we did have the emergence of Dennis Keith Lilly as uh, as a great Australian fast bowler to come. He uh, he uh, skittled the rest of the world with oh, I'm going to say took took maybe eight for twenty two <laughs> in Perth and, and the captain of the rest of the world who was battling. A battling uh, with form early on, came to Melbourne, missed out in the first first dig. That's uh, Sir Garfield Sobers, missed out in the first dig and then came out and, and played uh, what many who, who witnessed it say was the greatest innings ever played in Australia, a double century that he made over uh, the, th- the uh, second and third days of, of that. And, and I actually spoke to Dennis Lilly about it and said, what was it like? He said, it didn't matter where you bowled to him. He just... He just <laughs> wherever you like. So there you go. Without Meredith Bergman, no Gary Sobers. No, no no, big double century. So thank and you. Can I also add, because I know there are a lot of detractors of Don Bradman, but it was always very clear that he 
had very close friends in the West Indies team. Um, Clive Lloyd in particular and also Gary Sobers, he was yeah, very popular. I think so, Sir Frank Worrell too. Uh, yeah. Did he ask you to join the Freemasons? Look, Maris, you've also been very active in prison reform and we want to talk about that uh, sort of generally. Um, your interest, I think, uh, was particularly with women in prisons. Uh, and and did you start a group with some very prominent Australian women? Uh, Look, I, I would never say that I was um, one of the founders. I was a very early member of a group called Women Behind Bars. Right. What what happened was that during the seventies, there was real unease amongst. Um, you know the the the, the anti Vietnam crew, the anti apartheid people, the, the 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 activists of the early seventies mm. began to start realizing how bad uh, conditions were in New South Wales prisons. Uh, they were just, I mean, I think they were terrible all around Australia, but we were really concentrating on New South Wales. Yes, and. Um, especially young lawyers were very involved, some legal academics were very involved, and, of course, this all coalesced with what had been happening with the uh, black activists in Redfern who were beginning to set up the uh, Aboriginal Legal Service. And, and, of course, so many of the prisoners at that time, and, of course, still are now, were, were in fact, uh, Indigenous Australians. So I do want to just... just... Just talk about the conditions. So people will find it really difficult to understand. Look, our prisons now are, are not terrific uh, and they probably never, ever will be. But if we go back to the 70s and 80s, and, and as you say, it was Australia-wide. <clears throat> you had horror shows in, in Brisbane, the Boggo Road. You had uh, in, in Melbourne, Pentridge, and particularly H Division, which was, you know, where prisoners would literally break rocks. Uh, as a as an activity, uh, beatings were routine, etc. And then in New South Wales, it's actually we had this almost uh, hierarchy of shamefully bad prisons, really set almost in the 18th century, definitely 19th century type conditions. Uh, there seemed to be a bit of a race on to create the very worst, and at the top of that was Grafton Jail. Yes, Grafton really was uh, the first of the jails that we uh, concentrated on. It was, it was for intractable prisoners and yeah. the, um, the, the warders that worked there used to get something called a climatic allowance, which basically meant that they were chosen specifically for their brutality Jeez. and yeah. their ability to carry out, like, terrible stuff. Um, and it was very common for the uh, prisoners there to be beaten. Uh, bashings were uh, absolutely daily. Uh, for one thing, it was forbidden to make eye contact with a, a warder. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and in fact, you didn't have to do anything wrong because there was a, uh, an induction when you when you entered as an intractable, when you entered Grafton, it was, they called it the Jacaranda Festival, <laughs> and, and and it was called the Jacaranda Festival because jacaranda trees lined 
the road to um, to, to the prison uh, in a purple sort of bloom. And when in bloom, it was sort of deep purple, the sort of purple that would that, that would arise from your from your skin from from bruisings from beatings. And and so prisoners would arrive, and what was called the Jacaranda Festival, they would stand in front. The guards would just like just lay into them. So jacarandas are now ruined for me forever. That's good. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, that well, that was that was what the prison biff was called. The induction biff was called. It was um, called the Jacaranda Festival. Look, I don't think there was um, broad community support for prison reform. There never is. But what had happened was that various groups had made themselves so unpopular. So particularly women behind bars, can I say. We set up women behind bars because it became clear that the women in jail also needed support and advocacy, and yet no one was doing that. So women behind bars, which was a group of mainly women, there were four or five men involved too, but we really started looking at women um, in jail and what their circumstances were. And I can remember some of the things we did were quite, every time particular ministers turned up to, you know, open a bridge or, you know, be at an exhibition or open a fete, uh, these mad women behind bars, women would turn up and sort of throw, um, we used to throw cream cakes. Really? And uh, and muffins <laughs> and things. It was, but it was very, very irritating <laughs> for, you know, at this stage, it was a Labor government that thought of itself as reforming and, and here were these dreadful women <laughs> throwing things at them. So it really was a, um, a triumph of uh, protest politics that, that I think that the Nagel, and also there were good people in the Labor Party pushing for it too. Right. Yes, of course. I mean, these things didn't happen uh uh, any anywhere else? Um, well, in, in actual fact, the, Nagel, the the inquiry was first set up under the the Liberal Party, uh, but it was obviously set up to be a bit of a nothing burger. It, yeah. the, some of the people around Nagel were going to obviously tone down his recommendations, but um, Neville Rand, who was a very cluey lawyer sorted that out by demoting some and sacking some and making certain that, that Nagel really had good staff around him. Yeah, look, the situation in Victoria was, look, it was very different. And H Division was their nightmare prison. H Division Pantridge was their nightmare prison. And Christopher Dale Flannery, who became known as Rent-A-Kill, was a, an infamous uh, inmate there, breaking rocks and so forth, subject to beatings on a regular basis. And one day he walked into the the, the warden's office and, and just went naked and said, that's it, I'm on strike. Uh, he was the only one to strike. But Chris had, his brother was a, a lawyer with the Trades Hall Council and a, a bit of a media storm started and, uh, and that led to a parliamentary inquiry into conditions in H Division and a number of guards were moved on. Uh, and made the place, I guess, just a little bit more tolerable. So when, whenever I speak to guys who were in prison with 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 Chris, um, they 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 hold him to a, you know they hold him with great respect for the for the you know the, the torment that he went through, and of course then we look at you know the beatings and so forth that he went through, and then he comes out and he becomes a you know 
killer for hire. I mean, this, this, this is part of the problem here. If you create really brutal prison systems, you're not going to have good outcomes. You're going to have high rates of, of, uh, of re-offending, of recidivism, and you're going to have people going back into jail uh, and if those those places are particularly brutal, those people are going to come out and commit more and more brutal offences with, you know, higher social costs every time. There was a huge push in the early 80s for the privatisation of prisons yeah. and, in fact, Park Lee Prison, which I think is still private, it is. was built uh, at that time and a number of um, unions put bans on it but, of course, you know, scabs came in and, and built it. So there has been uh, pushback about um, privatisation of prisons and, of course, They've also realised that they don't work as well as, um, you know, the, the advocates say they will. Yes. One of the main private prisons in New South Wales is Junee Jail, and they've always used to argue how cost-effective it was. And the re- and I used to be on the um, Labor Party's prisons committee and I'd go, we'd, we'd visit jails and we went down to Junee and I looked around and I said... Uh, what are all these people in here for? Because it just seemed a really weird sort of jail. There are 600 inmates and every single one of them, except for a tiny little bit where there are a dozen or so local... Let me stop you. Can I guess? Marijuana offences, plantations, that cultivation, that sort of stuff? No. No. They were all pedophiles. Oh, okay. They they were all in there for some sort of... They were all in protection, basically. Right. And why it had worked so well and was so cost-effective was the easiest prisoners to look after are pedophiles, first of all because, uh, you know, they're not going to sort of be going around bashing each other up for being pedophiles, but they have they have no, most of them have no contact, contact with the outside world. Yes. Their families have given up on them. Yes. So that's why it can, they, they can be in Juni which is, you know, a million miles from Sydney. Uh, but it it was just a very easy population to control yeah. and they hardly needed any waters. It was it was an extraordinary and it, it just didn't even feel right as, it, as a jail. It's, it's protective custody yes. jail because, you know, the same situation occurs in Victoria where Ararat, which used to be, um, oh, Billy Longley was locked up in Ararat for a long time, but that that has now become the the place and bursting at the seams too since the Royal Commission uh, that hosts a lot of pedophiles, many of them Roman Catholic priests. And they do and they do try to keep them all together because that's you know it saves money to do it that yeah, way. It's, yeah, they've all got something I mean, in common, so that's it, nice. <laughs> it, it's 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 one of those. Look, it is one of those staples. I mean, like you know, people go to prison and then learn to become more serious criminals as they go. But that, that is another one, that the, the people who are despised are sex criminals um, and uh, particularly pedophiles because, you know, prisoners were once children and and some of them have children. So, yeah. It's also because they need someone, they need someone to look down on and the pedophile thing That's is right. the so, yeah, the so there's a hierarchy. Absolutely yeah. right. And, but it brings... But it brings us around to our main topic today, Meredith. It's been fascinating talking about this. But we've been, Joe and I have been looking at QAnon. And QAnon, the basis of it is that 
the state is involved in this. The elites. Well, yeah, the elites and the deep state are involved in this sort of massive. Uh, child trafficking, uh, basically. Child trafficking, uh, you know, an extraordinary sort of an extraordinary sort of level. I mean, it's a nonsense. Clearly, this has become the great, great insult, the great, the, the, the shit that sticks. If you call someone a pedophile, it's it's a very difficult thing to walk away from. And you've got you've got a lot of you, you've got basically a great deal of involvement in this when when. Um, Franca Arena, a Labor uh, MLC, I, I think I believe that's right. A la- yeah. Labor MLC started getting to her feet and making wild allegations. And and as Joel said in his intro, they weren't allegations about familial pedophilia or institutional pedophilia, um, but uh, pedophilia and sort of child rings around very powerful people in. In, in it's very much life. the um, the way of people saying uh, everyone in power that I don't like is a pedophile and they should be hung, drawn and quartered. And uh, that sort of thing has really been carried on and the torch has been carried by many very annoying people in contemporary discourse, uh, you know, Karen Brewer and Lizzie Rose and all these sort of sovsit idiots. But uh, I thought, and uh, Jack and I thought that really one of the most interesting things is going back to the very, what I would say is the genesis of this, which is Frank Arena and Bill Heffernan, but you were involved, you were the chair of the inquiry um, with Frank Arena, and she really started this whole everyone I don't like is a pedophile thing, and, um, wow, really kicked off. Yes, I ended up being the, I was at the time the chair of the uh, Parliamentary Ethics Committee, and I we had to look at whether Frank Arena should be, expelled from Parliament for um, claiming that, uh, I think her claims were that uh, that Nick Greiner and Bob Carr and a few other, maybe Peter Collins, I can't remember, but they were former premiers or former premiers of New South Wales. She claimed they were pedophiles. And, and of course, I don't believe that you should be expelled from Parliament for what you say in Parliament, no matter how bad it is. I, I, I take that position because... The people of the, the people of Australia or New South Wales elect you, and it's up to them to not elect you later. It's not up to members of Parliament to expel other members of Parliament. Anyway, but we had to look at her allegations, and I have to be a bit careful here because some of those allegations were made in camera. That is, you know, conf- confidentially, and I'm not allowed to say what some of those allegations are. But enough of them were put on the public record for me to be able to say that they were absolutely batty. Can I just take you back? I mean, basically what we find with QAnon is that there's sometimes a kernel of truth to some of their wild It legitimizes them, which is annoying. So so when Frank Frank Arena, she she at least got Frank Arkell right, the Wollongong mayor. But she wasn't the only Uh, one saying that. Yeah, right, okay. That, that, that had been known and it had been um, talked about in the uh, Illawarra She was newspaper. looking at someone else's homework on that one. Yes, very, that's right. Very cheeky. Uh, and, of course, she named Judge yeah. Yeldon, uh, who, uh, who there's no evidence he was a pedophile. No. There's certainly evidence that he was a, a closet homosexual yeah. who had allowed himself to fall into the clutches of the police by allowing them to to make 
things that were at the time illegal disappeared, which, of course, are not yeah. illegal now. Yeah. So he, uh, and she, of course, named him as a pedophile because there was a, in actual fact, I wasn't sure she was ever able to distinguish between homosexuality and pedophilia yeah. sometimes. And um, she named him as a pedophile and then he commits suicide. Yeah. So then half of the media in New South Wales say, oh, gosh, Franca must yeah. be onto something, you know, he committed suicide um, because, you know, what Franca says is true. What, uh, did you, what did you notice about her at the time, particularly after the Yeldum suicide? Did she start getting brassier? Did she start getting more? Um... She was absolutely convinced she was right. I remember um, a senior member of the government rang me that night and said, Yeldon has committed suicide. And the first thing I said was, oh, my gosh, how's <laughs> Franca? And he and he said she has no idea what she's done. She's Yeah, over the moon. Of, of course she bloody is. Awful. Yeah. And so she came very sure of herself. And I can still remember going, her going down to the press gallery, which in the New South Wales Parliament is sort of in this cavernous area underneath the Parliament. And she went down there and the media were hanging on her every word as if, you know, Franca, who's she going to name? That's what they always kept saying. They'd say to me, do you know who Franca's going to name next? And it became quite frightening. It, it was a cross between the witches of Salem and what it must have been like to live in McCarthy period in, in America. It was. Did you always hold these beliefs that, you know, senior powerful figures in New South Wales were pedophiles, or did she start developing it once she got ahead of speed after the Eldam suicide that she started spreading the net wider? Look, I don't think there was much scepticism in her soul, and I think that she was finding it hard to deal with the fact that close family members of hers were gay. She had, um, she had two, were they twin sons? Twin sons? Both guys, yeah, but that's that's their business, really. Well, so, but, but, but it seems but to me she, that she was blame shifting. That she thought, well, a good Italian, good Italian mother can't have uh, homosexual children, so I'm going to, I'm going to allege that they've been indecently yeah. dealt with. I think, I think she, I think she never alleged that, but I'm, I think that was her fear that that's right. what had happened and that had had, had changed them. I guess what I'm asking you is, did, did you see her become emboldened by this? By, by... Very much, very much. She was absolutely sure yeah. she was right. And by the time she started giving evidence to my inquiry, I mean, one of the, I still remember this one because it was the first question I asked, and this is on the public record. I asked her, uh, Franca Arena, you have made these various allegations. Do you Do you actually believe? that Judge A killed Judge B with an axe in Lane Cove National Park in order to become the top international Satanist in Australia. <laughs> and she answered yes. Brilliant. Wow. And I think that was what finally uh, did her in because it was such an absurd allegation. Yeah. Um, I can still remember the television news that night. Um, we <laughs> Well, a news, we editor, very... a news editor would not know how to deal with that. I mean... Well, I'll tell you what they did. They sent their um, 
<laughs> the reporters out to uh, Lane Cove National Park. We got we very tenderly gave them a grid reference and did bit, and did bits to camera. Uh, yeah, they did it to camera. Oh, Paul Mullen from I think Channel Nine saying, and it is in you know in front of the sign saying Lane Cove National yeah. Park. He says that it is in this park that Franco Arena alleges that Judge A killed Judge B with an axe, etc. Mm. And what the Supreme Court did, which was terribly funny, was um, some of the journos rang the Supreme Court and said, are you missing any judges? <laughs> any judges being <laughs> murdered? The Supreme Court said, oh, we, we will check, and then got back to them and said, no, we are not missing any judges. <laughs> we, we, we've, we've done a quick yeah. head count. Done a stock take. <laughs> Yes. And we don't we aren't missing any judges at the moment. None none have been murdered in 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 satanic it's, rituals. It's such a pleasure to be able to laugh and such a privilege to be able to laugh at these people because being involved in this would be the most harrowing time. But watching it from my perspective, just from an outsider in, I just think all of this is really funny and completely stupid. And it's so real. It's it's Parliament. <laughs> what? Look, it, the problem. So, the problem so, is. So, when you get to just to follow when, up on Frank Arena, she she was ultimately, I think, booted from the Labor Party. Is that right? She was expelled. Well, I don't think I can't remember. Um, I think she chose to leave. Right. Uh, and we didn't expel her from She stood as a candidate for the Child Protection Party, something she'd cobbled together herself, and and got about one point five percent of the vote. So so she when 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 push came to shove, she had absolutely zero credibility. But and it was because she'd fallen into that that trap of not talking and understanding pedophilia as being mostly happening in family yeah. settings or in close or institutions, settings. of course, and, and going and institutions like never once did she talk about uh, institutional abuse, um, but it's always this ritualistic, yeah, which we're seeing now. And can I say? And but can I say there was a huge um, push about that happening at the like the end yeah. of the nineties, satanic panic um, and all that sort yeah. of stuff, and, and, and repressed memory, yeah, all that stuff. Memory. And I can remember even some very good women's organisations being taken over by women who believed that they'd been part of ritual satanic Res- abuse. And I remember reading one document where this. These young girls said they'd been taken down to Melbourne and held in a castle and made to be bathed in body parts in a bath. It's very Q and It's very similar. The thing that's interesting with that, there's a person that I won't name who I've been tracking um, around the place, and I think naming her is really risky uh, for the reasons she exploits. She is a a victim of child sex trafficking. She's also, well, not institutionalized. God, I'm so red-pilled. Institutionalized child abuse. She was a victim, straight up legit victim, and she's severely red-pilled and... She makes these outlandish claims, but she has this legitimacy shield of the fact that she was a victim of abuse. So you can't really sit there and say, uh, I think you might be full of shit there, champion. I'm actually not so sure if any of that happened because how can you sit there and point the finger at someone who's endured such horrors and call them a liar? It's it's very hard to do. That is that is the problem. I, I, I question a number of people who obviously had had very damaged childhoods. They had so so obviously been victims of 
uh, pedophiles, and yet they kept wanting to name um, well-known Australian celebrities as the people who had done it when it was quite clear that this was yeah. not the case. So it, it, was, it was very sad, you know, the, the, the fact that we were talking to very damaged people who'd had terrible things happen to them but still wanted to blame yeah. the elite. It's, it's a real moment. Yeah. I like the fact that you used elite. That's a, that's a really good throwback. I like that. I guess the, the issue with this first and foremost is that this once that, once that um, uh, uh, accusation has been levelled against a person, and it can be, that, that person can be anonymous, but people will try and figure out who that person is. Once that allegation is made, it's almost, in, it's almost impossible yeah. to remove. Yes. The, the especially because of the yeah. internet, as soon as you Google someone, oh, totally. it comes up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. a bloody tricky one. Yeah. Uh, do, do you recall Bill Heffernan's... Um, a speech in the Senate where he named uh, Michael where he, Kirby. Here he attacked yeah. Michael Kirby. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, in fact, uh, wrote a letter to the Herald, which was signed by all Kirby's old mates from university, you know, you know Peter Collins, Nick Greiner, uh, me, Jeff Robertson, everyone signed it saying that we did not believe a word of it, that... Um, and of course, it was totally false. Absolutely, it was absolutely false. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, but but people believed it until, of course, it be, it was proved that the uh, the um, logbook page that from the okay. uh, Commonwealth Car Drivers um, logbook had uh, been falsified. Yeah, that's right. And, and and Heffernan, who was so keen to believe anything against. You know, a, a, a radical, a and prominent gay man, yeah, homosexual, just yeah. disgraceful. Uh, uh, yeah, it's not a not a judicial conservative. Look, I know people, and I won't go. I won't go into names. I know people who will swear blind that they they'll know someone who actually saw, you know, a prominent yeah. person take a child away from from an area, and and, and so and, and they'll so these these lies continue to. Exist. It's and, and it's outside of that Q and on framework. You know, you'll, you'll still see people. And it's in a political sphere. They say, "Oh, yeah, but that person, you know, I know, I know his driver." Yeah. Well, what about the Paul Keating story, where he was seen walking down the street in Paris with a handsome young man arm in arm, and of course, it turned out oh, to be yeah. his son. But you know, a lot of everyone believed Paul Keating was a yeah. Look, I, I you know that was I always got the feeling that that material that sort of those allegations had come from within the Labor Party or elements of it I don't know if you want to speak to that but but it, it seemed to me that uh, well there was a sort of you know demythologizing of Keating after his defeat in 1996 and you know I saw a lot of Labor Party people who were sort of um, you know sort of giving me this sort of hush hush information about Brad Keating, and then, of course, none of it yeah. was true. I have heard that every single Labor leader, state and federal, yeah. uh, was a pedophile. Yeah. I, 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 I can every that. single one of them. At some stage, someone is, oh, except for Barry Unsworth. Everyone forgets Barry Unsworth. <laughs> but every single other leader has been told to me in utmost uh, sincerity that they were 
Kitty Fitbert. It, it, it really does. What, what the Franca Arena uh, episode really does is it really sort of lay down the groundwork for this madness that is now sweeping the world. In America alone, 800,000 children are abducted. They're held in tunnels. They're tortured. They're their uh, bodily fluids drained and sold on the black market uh, and those that aren't uh, 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 sexually abused in uh, satanic rituals again. So, so, so Franca Arena was, was ahead of her time in that respect. But, you... but that's also why it was so concerning when Scott Morrison made oh, that yeah. speech about a year ago where he did Ritual use abuse. the word... Ritual, yeah. ritual abuse, and, and it was quite clear he'd been talking to his mate. Um... We don't have to look very. This is the this is the shocking thing about this. We don't have to look very far to find genuine instances of of pedophilia. You know, we've just had a royal commission, and we concluded a, a couple of years ago, uh, where uh, you know, virtually every religious organisation in Australia was up to their eye teeth. Yep. In cover-ups of uh, pedophiles, there's no shortage. Uh, you know, sporting associations, uh, scouts. Um, you know, all these. I mean, the, the, the people of the, I guess, of the age of, of Bill Heffernan or the vintage of Bill Heffernan and Franca Arena. See, they barely would have known. They would. They barely would have known the word pedophile. Yeah, it's a different different type of yeah. as a concept. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things that Jared Henderson constantly rabbits on about because in the sort of very early 70s, there was this sort of, oh, I don't know what you'd call it, but there, there, there was a sort of a view held by some that, that um, you know, sex with, with minors was uh, a, 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 a harmless crime. We know that it, that is completely not the case. No. So... so the, the simple fact of the matter is we, we have no shortage of pedophilia in this no. country and, and most of it is either familial or institutional. Oh, fuck, who is that? <laughs> we should keep that in the episode. Was, was, we sort of hinted at it, but Franca Arena's allegations, as bizarre as they are, they now fit the the template of QAnon now. You know, so, so what are the links? What are the... What are the um, uh, what are the Franca and Bill are the the big sort of um, foundations of Karen's work and a lot of other people who just like to point their finger and say that you know the similar sort of thing they did just you know this person's pedo this person's pedo I've got proof I'll tell you later Um, of course it's a bunch of bullshit but of course you know the 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 gavel came down on um, on Karen Brewer or whatever her real name is and uh, you know the eight hundred fifty odd thousand plus costs was against her. So they've been they've been inspired well, she by says Franca it. Arena. I think no. that some psychiatrists really fed into the whole repressed memory syndrome yeah. stuff, so that when damaged young people were saying to their psychiatrist, "Oh, you know, I, I was taken down to Melbourne and held in a castle," um, some psychiatrists like have teased it out of them. Believed Yes, and and yeah, so yeah. repressed memory syndrome, which was also sort of late nineties, uh, really until those terrible cases in is it was it Birmingham in the in the mid in mid 
people yes. of um, Britain, uh, where people were going to jail uh, for what were obviously just not true, not true from, allegations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was when repressed memory syndrome started to be queried as to whether it was the right uh, way to think. But I, I reckon that from Franco, which was late 90s, for the next 10, 15 years, it was, it was, it was yeah. rolling on. There was stuff about, uh, I can remember going to a Reclaim the Night uh, uh, event. That was when women were trying to say, you know, we, we should be able to walk at night. Um, and all, all, all the speeches were repressed memory stuff. And a lot of it, they got up and talked about satanic abuse. And I just thought, wow, how is this happening? So it had actually even become part of the women's movement. Um, yeah. But people people were taking it well, seriously. You, you can't say and, someone's lying in a yeah. situation like that. How can you possibly point your finger at a time like that? It's completely inappropriate. Yeah. And I, I can remember having this discussion with John Cleary, the very sensible um, religion guy from the ABC for some time, and I remember saying to him, well, how do I know? whether something's true yeah. or not. Because I I sat on that committee for 18 months and I always said that I had a splitting headache for 18 <laughs> months. <laughs> I took in a lot of Panadol. But um, when I asked him, how do I know, he says, look, all, in the end, all you've got to do is use your own common sense. Yeah. And I think that's all you can do. Is this a believable yeah. story? Common sense, trust yes. and trust children. That's the that's the other thing. So so if if you create an environment where a child can come to you, or can come to a, a, a to an authority figure and say this has happened to me, then you you knock that over. You knock yeah. that offending over very quickly. And and as you as we keep saying, ninety percent of the time it will be someone yeah. dear to to the person that the poor child is is yeah. you know saying yep. it to. So they're often very, very difficult circumstances. Yeah. Well, Meredith, it's been absolutely fantastic having you here. Uh, it's been, absolute, been an absolute joy. We've been recording for a long time. We've got so much to go through there. You've, you've lived such a magnificent life, uh, a caring life, an active life, uh, knocking over, knocking over uh, prejudice and stupidity uh, <clears throat> as you went, thank you so much for being with us. We'll we'll definitely have you back on because there's a couple of characters from the seventies and eighties that uh, I'd love to chat to you about. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, Joel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. We'll do. And now for the moment you've all been waiting for, Jack's rant of the week, and this one goes to the heart of what it is to be a Daryl, what it is to be with a Daryl. How do you lay next to a Daryl? Take it away. Thank you, Joel. Listeners, sit back for a moment and ponder the following. When has there ever been a solid citizen, a contributor, a person of note named Daryl? I've spent much of the last week staring into the sun until I get those spots and lines in front of my eyes, what I call the poor man's hallucinogens, and went through my list of Daryls, 
Daryl Strawberry, uh, Major League Baseball slugger in right field, but a drug cheat turned God botherer. Daryl Halligan, Bulldog, no. Daryl Oates, appalling. Daryl Summers, <laughs> asshole. Daryl Hannah, yeah. all right, she's okay. But my point is, there's never been a half decent bloke named Daryl in the history of Western civilization and before, even though Daryls are a fairly modern invention. And you know, I think the former member for Wagga, I actually never call Wagga, 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 uh, or Wagga, Wagga, Wagga. Uh, look, let's not start that again. I think the former MP for Wagga and from Hay, Daryl Maguire thought the same thing. When has there ever been a Daryl you could hang your hat on? And that's why our Daryl Maguire set up the card table outside his parliamentary office with a strict cash-only, no-refunds policy. Come on down to Daryl Maguire's office and he'll show you around the joint and introduce you to the Premier who he's been rooting for five years. It's the sort of get-up-and-go that gave the great state of New South Wales the rum core and Sir Robert Askin. Or another way of looking at it is it's the worst corruption in public office on record in New South Wales since the last time probably since Eddie O'Bead got in the mining caper or Milton O'Coplis was plying vulnerable kids with heroin before he rooted them. But one way or another, Daryl Maguire is the first Daryl to nail his credentials as a Daryl to the mast. He's done it not just for himself but for Daryls everywhere. It's only a matter of time before he can look back with pride when the Daryl Maguire wing of Her Majesty's Prison Silver Water is opened. Job well done, Dazza. Sorry, Daryl. <laughs> Very well done. Thank you, Jack. And now for the week in Pete Evans. It's been a big week, Joel. It's always a big week in fucking Pete Evans. <laughs> yeah, so um, one of the ones I really liked here, and I believe he's not alone in this hot, hot take, but uh, Pete's hot take and Gladys uh, is basically that uh, the COVID numbers are being inflated to cover up her corruption scandal. And uh, while New South Wales has, in fact, seen an uptick in COVID cases, which has, of course, given Melbourne a uh, new reason to be smug fucks after a very long string of losses in the city rivalry. But essentially what Gladys is doing is she's pumping up the COVID numbers to cover up for her sex scandal, kind of like Bill Clinton you know, bombed uh, Serbia. Uh, to cover up for the fact that you got a blowjob. Um, I mean, that was a bit more of a spectacular way of getting around something. But, uh, I mean, look, I'm actually yeah. personally not that unfamiliar with the idea that maybe Bill Clinton did bomb Serbia for that reason. We've talked about this. Yeah. Oh, you're nuts. You've gone crazy. Anything anything that you came up with before you hit 20 is a silly I am idea. light red-pilled, light red-pilled. But I tell you what, this is bullshit. This is fucking bullshit. People have COVID. That's life. I'm going to start wearing a mask at the supermarket. It's annoying, but that's that's life. Fuck's sake. That's right. But the other thing you've got to say about Pete, he actually doesn't believe in COVID anyway. He thinks it's a plan. No, he's a fucking idiot. So basically what his post actually says is, notice how the dramatic increase of New South Wales virus cases coincidentally happens when the Premier was about to be questioned about hers and her secret politician lovers' questionable dealings with China were under investigation. Fuck, that's a long sentence. Pete, rein your head in. But... Then he says, well, there's other things too, and uglier, uglier things that Pete's been on about this week too. I mean, he's actually suggested that the uh, uh, Gardasil uh, vaccination, which will save literally thousands of lives, of thousands. lost to cervical, cervical cancer, 
is actually causing gender dysphoria. Tell us about it. Guy's a fucking asshole. So basically, what he's done in his traditional Chef Pete Evans kind of way is that he's not really saying it. He's just asking questions. He's just relaying others' information. He's just putting things out there. So a woman named Dina Churchill, who is a chiropractor, well, he is or was a chiropractor in Canada, who uh, after hearing this tweet, you'll be very glad to know, was uh, fined $100,000 posting shit like this basically a chiropractor well there's yes there's a profession you can well trust. look i love having my neck cracked and my chiropractors in the past have been very good friends of mine i fucking love them but i tell you what there is a lot of their comrades who are making them look like complete fucks in public bottom line vaccination will so will will save thousands of lives lost to uh, cervical cancer but they're telling they're trying to tell us that basically it it, it can reduce male both, both both boys and girls receive the vaccination, yes. and that will basically scatter their their gender alignment all over. The Facebook them. post itself literally says. The last five years in chiropractic practice, which is a bit of a mouthful, I had six young, beautiful girls wishing to change their sex identity after that HVP, which is a spelling mistake, HPV, shot. They wish to have mastectomy, do hormone treatments, and change their girl names to boy names. What is it in that particular vaccine caused that epidemic since 2015? How do we solve the problem? So, okay. She got fined 100K for things like this. And in the hearing, it was said that Dr. Churchill's conduct brought the profession of chiropractic into disrepute and that Dr. What you saying, Zander? Well, fuck. And, and Dr. Churchill has shown no remorse. There is genuine concern that she is ungovernable. And ungovernable to me basically says this person is a child and throws tantrums when being told what to do. And this idea is thoroughly backed up by the fact that she is a raging anti-masker and a lunatic in general. Well, I mean, she she obviously is, yeah. but where does this uh, nonsense, uh, the gender dysphoria, is at epidemic levels come from? We're seeing it in a lot of conservative thought at the. It's moment. transphobia. It's just it's straight transphobia. It's this idea that there is something inherently wrong with trans people because they are bigoted pieces of shit, and you know, in the fact that she's like you know, like if you look at her. Her fucking blog is called Dr. Sexy Mum. Like, she is a narcissistic piece of shit. And the fact that Pete Evans saw anything in this worth sharing really shows a lot about him as a person. I mean, like, if you're calling gender dysphoria an epidemic, you're basically saying that trans people are a disease and that the, you know, the use of sex identity instead of gender feels very much like loaded language. And, like, this yeah. is bullshit because trans people are not fucking vaccine injured. That is a despicable so, position to take. Well, look, uh, we'll talk. We'll get back to church in a minute, but I just want to talk about. I just want to talk about pandemic Pete because to me this seems like a call to arms to those rather confused conservatives out yeah. there who think gender dysphoria is at epidemic absolutely level. it's a big scaremonger with this you know that i've got lots of genderqueer mates i've got lots of trans mates and the only people i see on social media talking about fucking gender are conservatives conservatives who are uh, identifying as apache helicopters and being fucking wankers about it everyone else is just quietly going about their business and every now and then politely asking maybe call me they it's not a big deal it's not a big deal 
Ah, well, look, Pete Evans rarely disappoints, and fuck me, has he delivered recently. We have a wide archive of Pete Evans' material, so if he goes quiet, there's plenty in the vault to take the piss out of him. But will he go quiet? And I don't think that's likely. So there you have it. Until next week, that's the Pete Evans, that's the week in Pete Evans. You have been listening to the Conditional Release Program with your hosts, Jack the Insider and Joel Hill. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, and if you've enjoyed our bullshit, Throw us a five-star review on your podcast. Jack app. can still be found on Twitter on at Jack the Insider and Joel on Crunchy Moses with a K. We've set up a Facebook page, which if you search for on Facebook, the Conditional Release Program, you'll find it. And finally, all feedback, tips and death threats should be sent to the Conditional Release Program at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, even if it's simply to tell us that you have plans to murder us in cold blood with repeated blows of a blunt axe.